0: Hello, and welcome to the Growth Lab at Harvard University's podcast. On today's episode of the Growth Lab podcast, CID Student Ambassador Emily Osobel interviews Tim O'Brien and Dan Stock, research fellows at Harvard's Growth Lab. Tim and Dan discuss the Growth Lab project in Sri Lanka and how they are applying the growth diagnostics methodology to identify the country's binding constraints for diversification and economic growth.
1: Welcome, Tim and Dan. Thank you for being here. To uh, start off our conversation, I was wondering if you could uh, both just introduce yourselves and talk about how you ended up working for the Center for International Development.
0: So, I'm Tim O'Brien. I'm a research fellow at the Center for International Development. I was an MPA I do student at Harvard Kennedy School. Before that, I graduated in 2015, and before that, I worked in engineering, and I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Malawi. So, being at Uh, CID now is a place I get to apply all of my skills and experience from before. Um, And I'm Daniel Stock. I'm also
2: a research fellow at the Growth Lab at CID. I was always kind of aware of Professor Hausman's work and was really interested and got to audit his course as an undergraduate. I asked a bunch of annoying questions and he referred me to one of his colleagues and I ended up uh, working as a research assistant. From there, I took a detour at the World Bank for a couple of years, but came back to Sri Lanka um, to work for CID.
1: Great. Um, So, Tim, your talk today at CID was about applying the growth diagnostics methodology to a real-world case uh, in Sri Lanka. Could you please explain to us what is this growth diagnostics methodology and tell us about some of the findings you've had in applying it to the Sri Lanka context? Um, And then also, you know, how did you end up working in in Sri Lanka and what were you originally trying to achieve?
0: Whereas a, a medical professional looks at a patient and tries to figure out what's wrong with them and medical researchers look at what causes diseases in general, growth diagnostics allows economists to be a little bit more like the former and try to take a specific case and see what the binding constraints to economic growth are in that place, rather than a lot of economics that just looks at problems in general and tries to understand causation. So in Sri Lanka, we've applied this methodology over the course of two years, and it's been an evolving process. And we learned that, that first, early on, growth in Sri Lanka was constrained by the balance of payments. Sri Lanka had a large trade deficit that wasn't being financed by capital inflows, but they were protecting their exchange rate. So when the trade deficit widened too much, they lost international reserves and growth slowed down and they needed IMF support. And then over two years, we've been digging deeper and deeper asking, why is that? So first, we learned that the first reason for that is that exports aren't growing very quickly. Then we learned that exports aren't growing very quickly because exports aren't diversifying as they are in in neighboring countries to Sri Lanka. And then we did a lot of work to try to figure out why that was the case. And my talk today covered a little bit about the complexity of doing that and how um, growth diagnostics is not a neat process in real life, but it's a useful set of tools to let you keep unpeeling the onion. And we we started work in Sri Lanka two years ago, a little more than two years ago, uh, because there was a, a surprise election result in the country. And there was a lot of excitement, uh, especially with international donors in helping figure out ways that this, this country, which had been in 30 years of war up to 2009 and had a fairly autocratic leadership until 2015, could make the most of this opportunity to deliver shared and sustainable growth. So CID was brought in to provide economic research to help inform the government of of their their choices and and what should be economic priorities. And we used the growth diagnostic tool to navigate the terrain and to figure out how we could be helpful.
1: So Dan, you're uh, you're calling in from Colombo right now, and you've worked on this project both in Sri Lanka as well as here at CID. Uh, So I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the Differences between those two experiences and any lessons you've learned or key insights you have from doing this work from from both places
2: Sure, so it's it's been amazing being here in Sri Lanka um, And getting to work with policymakers and with Sri Lankan researchers and something I hadn't actually foreseen was Research units within different ministries of the government of Sri Lanka. So it's been really rewarding being able to connect the research and the policy work that's happening here with kind of the cutting edge findings coming out of CID. And it really goes both ways because we learn much more about how policy works in action and that informs our work. One example I thought of was um, Tim mentions in his talk that land, access to land is one of the binding constraints for Sri Lanka, according to our findings. So from that, you know, we could just drop off our report and say, okay, work on land. But instead, we had this parallel work going on with the Building State Capabilities Project that was actually working with investment officers and the Board of Investment to open up new export processing zones. And as part of that, they wanted to know which parts of the country had the most skilled workers, which would be the most appropriate fit for new sectors. And so these are questions that we had already been thinking of but we had never quite done the work to present our evidence in a way that could be applied immediately. And so that was a really great collaboration, and I think we learned a lot.
1: Fantastic. So, Tim, in addition to some of the ways in which Dan has just explained how your project has collaborated across CID, are there any other kind of exciting or surprising findings from the research that you've done? And what are the ways in which you're taking these findings and actually presenting to the gov- them to the government in a way that they can then take action and, and develop new policies around that?
0: Some of our findings in Sri Lanka surprised us. There are some things that when we first arrived, we heard a lot from the government about this is a constraint or that is a constraint, and we tested them. and We were surprised at the end to learn that actually policy inconsistency itself was a big constraint for the private sector. And it happened in such a way in Sri Lanka that it is worse if you're a new industry or a foreign investor than if you're an established domestic industry. Uh, That surprised us because it wasn't something that we've seen be a constraint in any other country where we've worked. Another thing that was surprising as we dug deeper was that most of our constraints, if not all of our constraints, from policy uncertainty to land access to water and wastewater infrastructure, transport infrastructure, These were some of the most binding ones, traced back to an underlying complexity of the government itself. Sri Lanka has over 50 ministries, and they change from time to time, and ministers change from time to time, and hundreds or even thousands of boards and agencies that are involved in lots of decision-making led Ricardo to say, why make things difficult if you can make them impossible? So a lot of our work has been, since emerging at a, a diagnostic understanding of the country, Figuring out ways within this complexity of the government and decision-making to be helpful. So we deliver small messages through memos. We deliver lectures and talks in Sri Lanka. We write op-eds. And then we, we create larger reports, which a lot of people don't really read in a developing or a developed country. So we try to be creative about how to get our messages through. And we try to apply our lens of our diagnostic findings to policy questions that the government's already working on. And we also try to help better equip them to communicate with the private sector, to involve the private sector more in developing policies and try to orient the the government more around resolving constraints that the private sector faces. I would just add that it doesn't
2: always have to be a surprising finding. Um, That if anything, I'm a little suspicious whenever we think that we know something that sure that we've you know done all our checks there Um, because what can be equally useful is when we hear a minister or someone say this is exactly what I've been trying to say for so long this will help me say it having research graphs whatever that can tell the story backing it up with hard numbers backing it up with journal article type work I think is enormously powerful and we can also help convene different groups of people around responding to these findings. So like Tim said, getting the private sector and the public sector on the same page is enormously helpful a lot of the time. And so even if it's not something new, we can maybe help prioritize it or we can maybe help one side convince the other side that it's worth taking a closer look at.
1: And are you finding that the private sector is interested and responsive to that those recommendations?
2: To a degree, trade policy is something that we work on where you see a whole spectrum of responses from some companies want to protect the market that they already have, um, and other companies are more interested in trying to increase their exports. So it, it can be difficult sometimes finding private sector people who, rather than maintaining the status quo, want to grow rapidly. But there are people like that. And then there are new companies that are interested in setting up in Sri Lanka.
1: So what other countries is CID applying this methodology to? And is the situation in Sri Lanka representative of what you're seeing in other countries or not? And what are some of the trends that you are seeing across, across different countries that you're working in?
2: So I can answer um, for another type of work, which is the economic complexity product space analysis, which I've done in a few different countries. Sri Lanka is interesting because I think it's a great representative of countries that get stuck in the garment sector phase. If you look at a picture of the product space, which is this model we have that connects all of these different industries, you can see that it's very easy once you start exporting t-shirts to also export sweaters or something like that but then you kind of hit a wall from there and sri lanka might even be a special case because it's been stuck there for so long Um, its garment sector boom was in the 70s and early 80s and so because of that it's gotten incredibly good at garments it's one of the most innovative countries in the world when you only look at that sector but there hasn't been a new sector since and so there are a lot of other countries That are stuck in a similar place or that get stuck in a similar place for decades and then somehow manage to escape the trap. So, for that reason, I think Sri Lanka is incredibly interesting. There are other things about the country that are completely unique. And when it comes to growth diagnostics, I think we typically find very different diagnoses for different countries.
0: Yeah, Yeah, Sri Lanka has been a really great example of something we're learning in terms of economic complexity that. The path to development often goes through garments, and Sri Lanka is an example of a country that got stuck in garments and didn't diversify its exports beyond that. So the reasons beyond that is then where Sri Lanka becomes, or the reasons underneath that is why Sri Lanka becomes uh, unique. And CID has been doing diagnostic work recently in Saudi Arabia, Albania, Panama, municipalities in Mexico, and many other places. And every place ends up being unique. But one thing that's been a trend of late is we're learning about immigration as a tool for development and diasporas as a tool for development. So that when countries do need to diversify the know-how to produce new goods and services in order to provide more and better jobs, they often need to attract know-how from companies and from people abroad. And we're finding that A lot of countries, including Sri Lanka, don't get enough skills and know-how from immigrants and from their own diaspora, which is often located in other countries which are much more complex and and where GDP per capita is higher. So that's one commonality and one important area of policy that we're exploring in a lot of countries. But the diagnostic results themselves often lead to very different different conclusions in different places.
1: And so it seems like there are a lot of uh, potential upsides to Sri Lanka diversifying its economy. What might be some barriers as they try to pursue that diversification?
0: Well, the the barriers are what the growth diagnostic seek to understand. And across the board, new companies struggle to find good land close to a functional port, because the main port of Colombo is, is really the only one that is developed and works with uh, solid electricity infrastructure, wastewater infrastructure. And we just find that in Sri Lanka, that that physical places where you can make those investments are lacking. And those limited places, policy tends to orient around existing sectors, rather than new sectors. And and this uh, ends up, working in lots of crazy ways, but that's the general problem. Now on top of that, you have things like climate change affecting the country and certain regions of the country are changing immensely and facing increased pressures because they used to rely on say, a lot of rainfall at a specific period of time. And now that monsoon is changing and there have been recurrent droughts. And then paradoxically also increased flooding because when the rain does come, it comes much stronger. So you have sort of long-term constraints, and then you have some some new challenges that Sri Lanka is facing.
1: So looking forward with this project, what what's what lies ahead? Where are you going, uh, Dan? Maybe you can talk to this. Um, what what's the future of this work in Sri Lanka?
2: Sure. So it's it's interesting here. There was just a local government election, which. Um, on paper, shouldn't matter as much because local governments don't have a lot of power. But in fact, it was seen as kind of a test of the mandate of this government. And there's some debate, but most people interpret the results as this government failing the test, mm-hmm. that people here are not satisfied with the progress of the coalition government. And so the re-election is coming up. It's in 2020. And so the clock is kind of ticking. And it's interesting to see the government now becoming very strategic about its goals and how it wants to make a case to the electorate that it can make development happen while also, you know, protecting the most vulnerable people. And so we are very interested to be a part of that. And that involves a lot of continuation on the work we've already been doing. Our work more generally stems directly from the growth diagnostic. So the overall finding is that Sri Lanka needs more exports. And so we say, well, exports to where? And it turns out that there are key markets, both in terms of large regional markets, but also strategic markets um, for global value chains that could be considered. And also just preparing the economy, the businesses to be exporters in general. Um, and to be protected from the possible downsides of trade, so that's one thing that would need to happen. Um, and then for diversification, we also diagnosed that there aren't a lot of low-hanging fruit out there. There's not a lot of easy options that the country needs new sources of know-how for new sectors. And so for that, um, we're very interested in immigration policy as well as diaspora policy, Sri Lankans. Living abroad and skill development would be part of that as well. And then um, we also want to make sure that this isn't just a Colombo centric growth model. Um, like Tim said, right now, Colombo has been kind of the hub of growth because of the port, in part. There's not a lot of land in Colombo, there is land outside of Colombo. since the growth diagnostic, and we're really excited to be working on them.
1: Fantastic. Finally, some of our listeners uh, might be interested in doing work similar to this. This is really exciting work. What advice do both of you have for people interested in getting involved in, in this kind of work? And specifically for students who might be listening Are there specific courses or skills that you would encourage them to seek out during their time here at the Kennedy School or wherever they might be studying?
0: Well, for anyone at the Kennedy School, because I was at the Kennedy School, I could say it's an overwhelming experience to try to take it all in. But just try to recognize that you're here to learn and try to spread yourself as far as possible, especially in your, say, first year At the Kennedy School and take it all in. I always kept a a running set of notes from all the classes and talks that I went to over two years and by the end I I realized that I had learned a tremendous amount. Stay tuned to, to CID, our website and our Facebook and Twitter. We are often doing interesting things in more and more countries and often looking for help. Beyond HKS, think that that this is a great time to be studying development anywhere. Um, There's been a lot of exciting innovations in recent years, but we're also learning the pitfalls of each one. For me personally, trying to apply growth diagnostics, which in in class seemed like a neat tool, very clean. In real life, it turns out that that real life is real life. And you, you could take each tool that you learn wherever you study it, whatever you read about and try it out and see how far it takes you. Um, but development is an exciting thing to work in because you, you can use different frameworks. And in the end, you're, you're really, it's really about talking to people, connecting people, uh, hearing from them and uh, seeing how the tools of economics can be helpful.
1: Great. Dan, do you have any insights? Uh, well,
0: first of all, take Ricardo's course.
2: Um, because he's the expert and it's a great course. I would just add that one of my favorite things about academia is how open it is. So just the fact that all of these papers are published and the authors are available for correspondence, the data sets can be shared. If it's something you're really interested in, read the papers, read the authors they cite. You can really dig into it. And the very best part is that you can even talk to the people. So you can't really talk to anyone at Google unless you have connections or something, but, uh, Tim O'Brien's office is on the website. And so you can annoy him anytime. Feel free to come out to Sri Lanka and annoy me. And yeah, it's, I think it keeps us honest that, um, anyone can talk to us and it's great to see people
1: interested in the work. Great. Well, I I hope some of our listeners actually take you up on that. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Dan and Tim, for talking with us today.
0: Thank you. Uh, Thank you. If you want to learn more about the Growth Lab's latest research and events, please visit growthlab.cid.harvard.edu.